This podcast is a production of Schweitzer, a United Methodist Church, transforming lives by making disciples of Jesus Christ. It was last fall that Susan and I were privileged to lead about 20 folks from Schweitzer to Europe and Asia, to Turkey, to Greece and Italy, as we uh, went on this wonderful cruise and we saw these beautiful sights. But most importantly, we got to retrace some of the steps of the Apostle Paul. And it was during that journey that we heard wonderful teaching and lectures, and I've been reading more books. And um, Paul has become much more alive to me as a result of that journey. And I hope that uh, through this message series that he comes alive, more alive at least, to you as well. And uh, the dramatic effect that Paul had on the first century world continues in our world today. I mean, he's larger than life. Think about it. He's been dead nearly 2,000 years, and yet his writings are read by millions of people every day. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a scholar. He was brilliant. He was a rising star in Judaism all before he met Jesus Christ. Before he met Jesus Christ, you might characterize Paul as someone who carried a big stick. Teddy Roosevelt said, speak softly and carry a big stick. Paul's stick was used to hurt people. Paul exemplified someone with religious zeal and great personal ambition. Religious zeal and personal ambition is a deadly combination. Paul, by his own admission, was out to destroy Christians. And so his conversion to the Christian faith is absolutely astonishing. One that no one saw coming. Think with me just for a moment. How many of you remember the Iran hostage crisis in 1980? The Ayatollah Khomeini, the Grand Ayatollah of Iran held hostage, what, nearly 500 Americans. Imagine in the midst of that crisis, Khomeini announced to the world that he was reversing course, he was releasing the hostages, and he had placed his faith in the way of Jesus Christ. Or think about Osama bin Laden the leader of Al-Qaeda. How we killed him. We killed him four or five years ago. Imagine, in one of those familiar videos, Osama bin Laden would have said, I have a change of heart. The faith that I once and am persecuting, I now am a part of that faith. I place my faith and confidence in the resurrected Jesus. 
How many of us would have believed that video? How many of us would have thought that someone was fabricating that message? Or today, a leader in the ISIS movement creates a video and does the same thing. How many of us would believe, for one thing, that it was even possible or probable that such a about face could happen? And yet, Paul, as a religious leader, is filled with hatred of Christians. And his conversion is no less dramatic now. And so the one who was the persecutor of the church, the one who hated Christians, now becomes a believer and a proclaimer of the good news of Jesus. The one who was persecuted becomes persecuted. And Paul, near the end of his life, recounts to the Corinthians all the things he went through and suffered because of Jesus. Let's look. Paul was imprisoned several times. He was exposed to death. He was stoned. You know the story of Jesus. The night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested, he was whipped 39 times before he goes to the cross. On five different occasions, the apostle Paul was lashed 39 times. Three times he was beaten by rods. He was exposed in night and day to the open sea. He had to fight the dangers in rivers and bandits on the open road, spending sleepless nights, enduring hunger and thirst. He was cold and naked. He fought beasts in Ephesus. And on top of all that, he had the pressure of all the churches. I don't know what is more dramatic about Paul's conversion, the dramatic 180 that happens in a minute, or the fact that for the next 30 years, the conversion held. That Paul was willing to endure the great suffering of being an apostle of Jesus Christ. For 30 years, he was faithful. And so his life next to Jesus Christ has the greatest effect on the architectural development and movement of the Christian faith. And so today, what we want to do is look at the life of Paul just a little bit more, look at this conversion experience, and see how his conversion relates to our lives as well. Quickly, Paul's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was born about the year 1 to 4 A.D. In other words, he's about three or four years younger than Jesus of Nazareth. We don't know if Jesus of Nazareth and Paul ever met but we get the sense that on the Jewish festivals, Paul observed and knew and watched Jesus from afar, if not at times up close. He hated Jesus. 
He hated what Jesus' followers were doing to his religious traditions. And Paul goes out of his way to stamp this movement out. He's a rising star in Judaism. And so we join his life. He's about 30 years of age. He's moving up the ladder. Uh, if you would par parallel this with uh, Catholicism, modern-day Catholicism, you might say, well, he, you, know, you start out as a priest, and then you become a bishop, and then you become an archbishop, and then you be might become a cardinal, and then you might become pope. Paul is on that stardom rise. He wants to be a part of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, made up of about 70 prestigious members. Paul is a Pharisee of Pharisees. He keeps the law dutifully. He is faithful. He is a religious zealot. And so we join his story, or he joins the story in the book of Acts in the seventh chapter when we have the stoning of Stephen. Now, Stephen is the first Christian martyr. And we read, and you can read about this in the seventh chapter of the book of Acts, that as Stephen is stoned, Stephen looks up and he sees this vision, and he's able to see Jesus, the Son of God, standing with God. And Stephen, just as Jesus forgives people on the cross for their transpasses against him, Stephen cries out and says, don't let this be held against their charge. They say that Stephen had the voice, the face of an angel as he's being stoned. And we also read that the one that is consenting to his death, where they actually take the cloaks of Stephen and lay them at his feet, is Paul. So Paul, after the stoning of Stephen, doesn't leave it there. He wants to go to Damascus, and he goes to the high priest, asks for papers that he might track down these people of the, of the way that's following Jesus as Lord. He wants to get them in prison. He wants to destroy them. He wants to put them away. He wants to stamp out this movement. And so we pick up the story in the ninth chapter of the book of Acts, and we read these words. Meanwhile, Saul still, and by the way, Saul is Paul's Hebrew name. Saul is the Hebrew name. Paul is the Greek name for one and the same persons, okay? And so we read in this account, his name is Saul, talking about the same person. But Saul, still breathing out threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that he, if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, and Christians were not called Christians yet. They were simply known as people of the way men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, 
whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And there, for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, in this wonderful conversion experience, we we have this amazing dialogue that is going on between Jesus and Saul, Paul. Paul is riding his horse, or maybe there was no horse, but he's on the horse, and he falls off the horse. I don't know literally whether it was a horse or not, but I love the metaphor that we have to fall off our horse. My mother would say to me as a child when I got too much of myself, Robert, get off your high horse. I knew what she meant. Paul was knocked off his horse. He's knocked flat on his back. He sees a bright light. He converses with this voice. And in the account that he tells in Acts 26, he has even more dialogue with Jesus. The dialogue goes again like this. A voice from heaven says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul, it's hard. Then the voice also says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. This is one of the things that came very much alive to me in the journey this fall. What are goads? Well, in the Mideast, there's sheep. Lots of sheep. And in Paul's day, and perhaps even to this day in some places, the goads were these sticks with sharp ends to them. And whenever you want to get a sheep to go where it doesn't want to go, you goad them. You prick them. As a boy growing up on the farm, we had cattle. And the one, the hardest thing in, in uh, one of the hardest chores on the farm for me was corralling the cattle. I always hated that job because I was very intimidated by steers and cows, and we wanted to get them corralled up a chute, and they didn't want to go. So we used cattle prods. Same kind of principle. Now, in the latter part of my childhood, Dad wised up and actually got electrified cattle prods. They worked much better, much easier. Notice this powerful image that Jesus uses. Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? It's hard to kick against the goads. Paul's been kicking in his opposition to what God wants to do in his life. You wonder if God didn't start working on Paul in a very powerful way when he saw Stephen stoned and Stephen acting with a spirit of forgiveness. You wonder wonder if God had been pricking his conscience for a while. Do you ever feel like you are kicking against the goads? You're kicking against what God wants to do in your life. 
maybe in becoming a follower of Jesus, maybe in really living this faith. Do you ever feel like you have loved ones and family that you're concerned about? And the more it seems that God is working in their life, the more hostile they become. They're kicking against the goads. What a powerful image. And Paul says, who are you? Who are you? And, and, and to Paul's worst nightmare, the response is, I am Jesus. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus. How many of you remember Archie Bunker? Most of you. The younger ones, you may remember, you may know the episodes too. Archie Bunker was Archie Bunker. I remember the scene where he's coming out of surgery and he sees this image of God and his image of God is an African-American woman. It horrifies Archie Bunker. Paul was horrified in the discovery that the Lord, the Lord God, is Jesus. He's blinded temporarily. He's led into town in Damascus. And for three days and three nights, we wait to see what happens. He's knocked off his horse. He's blinded. He's led into town. But the conversion, the story of Paul coming to Christ, doesn't happen without the help of a man named Ananias. Let's pick up that story in verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias! And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he had seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in, lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many from many about this man, about how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. Now, and here he is the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. What's Ananias saying before we read on? He's saying, I don't want to do this. I don't want to go lay my hands on the Ayatollah. I don't want to go to Osama bin Laden. I don't want to go to this ISIS leader. You know those hymns we sang earlier in the service? Did you believe them, really? I mean, that lyric about uh, To God Be the Glory where it says the, the vilest offender he'll receive. Do you, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that part where amazing grace will save a wretch? like me. Do we really believe that, church? Do we really believe that God can take hold of any life? 
I was reading the news leader yesterday about a Catholic sister who's going to the trial proceedings of the man, the suspect, strongly, strong suspect that killed the professor at Missouri State University a year or so ago and shot his wife as well. And one of the things that she says is, if I had a chance to talk to him, I would say, if you are a Christian, there is hope. It's a staggering story of a woman where the vilest offender did one of the cruelest things in taking the life of a friend. And yet, in a world where so many people are, are wounding others from hatred, from mental illness, from so many things. This sister is seeking to live in the way of Jesus. What I suggest to you is that everyone needs an Ananias. And seldom if ever does anyone come to faith and restoration without an Ananias in their life. And it takes a lot of courage and a lot of boldness to be an Ananias, to stick yourself out there when God is asking you to do something, especially against the vilest offenders or even people that just rub us the wrong way. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And Paul did suffer, did he not? So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, this is just unbelievable to me, laying his hands on him. Brother Saul. What words of grace. Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with his disciples at Damascus. But what happens to Paul next is that Ananias introduces him to the disciples. And some people believe his story and some people don't. But he has this amazing reversal of now going to the synagogues and proclaiming faith in Christ, the very faith that he had tried to stamp out. And then he disappears for three years. And we pick up the story well, you've got to come back next week.
But here's my question for us. Think about your life. Uh, Think about how we can so easily kick against the goads in opposition to what God is doing. Maybe this is you today. Or maybe you're someone that is, you're, you're, you're kicking against the goads in someone else's life. So there's two things I want to say. Those who are giving up hope about the goads and then also the importance of speaking out a blessing into someone's life. Susan and I were reflecting this week about our, our fathers and her brother who died. All three are gone. Her father died 29 years ago this week. He was an alcoholic. He grew up in the Bronx. He had a tough childhood. A lot of people were mean to him. It's hard for people to believe that God is good when they experience a lot of meanness in their childhood. But he has people that witness to him and faith in him. And so when he's dying of cancer, just literally days before he dies, he opens his, his eyes, scales fall from his eyes like Paul, and he says, I want to receive Jesus. And Dorothy, his wife, is there. And he does. Nearly 19 years ago, my father a very good moral man, a good father, in many, many ways. Experienced also a lot of meanness in his childhood. A lot of people who literally took sticks and would beat him. And he never, ever beat me. But it was hard for him to come to believe that God was good, especially when his first daughter died before the age of two. But over the years and through a lot of episodes and times in his life, uh, he softened. And as he's dying with leukemia in the hospital, literally again, just days before he dies, he opens his eyes And he says, I want to receive Christ. And my brother is there and leads him in the prayer. A couple years ago, Mike, Susan's brother, is dying because of the ravages of alcoholism. And he can no longer speak. He's in the ICU area unit. And my son, our son Jonathan, travels from Ohio to Indianapolis. And he goes into the ICU area, and Mike has not conversed with anyone in days. But he hears his favorite nephew's voice. They called each other soccer man and soccer ball. And Jonathan walks in, and Mike opens his eyes. And Jonathan talks to him about this faith, faith in Jesus Christ and how that God loved him and how that he was 
going to meet him someday at the eastern gate. Susan always uses that phrase, the eastern gate, because Susan has a terrible sense of directions. And so it's a, it's a big family joke, but it makes a point. The eastern gate. And they work out this communication where, Mike, if you understand this and you, you believe this and you accept this, blink your eyes. And he most certainly did. Why is it that so often we have to get knocked off our horse or face death before we say yes? So, if you are living in opposition to Jesus Christ, or you know of loved ones and family that you're concerned about, don't give up hope. It's hard to live life kicking against the goads. There is a better way to live. It is the way of Jesus. Now, if you are a believer and you're a disciple and you love Jesus, you have a calling on your life. And your calling is to be Ananias to, to others, to speak a blessing and a word of blessing into someone's life. Paul receives the words of Ananias, and it's a powerful effect. My mother is 96. She has a, she, her dementia has now progressed to the point where she's not belligerent, but she's tormented by the belief that so many people are mean around her. I don't like going to see her. It's very depressing. It's very hard. But after Christmas, we went up and we spent a couple different segments of days with her. And she's tormented and she's suffering. And I, I just say, God, what do I do here? But I start singing the hymns, the old hymns, the old songs she grew up with. Uh, what a friend we have in Jesus. And she starts singing with me. And then we, we go into some other song, but the song that she sings almost verbatim. Uh, Coralie, we weren't great, but we were great in terms of the words in the garden. And when we're done singing, my mother looks at me and she says, you are good. I told you she has dementia. But there is a glow on her face. And just for a moment, she is united to who she really is. And she says, this word of blessing over me. We are going to see the Lord soon. So you and I can learn from this story of the conversion of Paul. He's bigger than life. We may think it doesn't have that much to do with us. He's much beyond who we are. His conversion is more dramatic than any conversion we could ever have. The suffering he went through is greater than anything that we will have to suffer. That's true. 
but we can still kick against the goads. We can live in opposition to God or we can choose to drop our stick and say, God, I am yours. And we can be like Ananias. We can speak words of blessing in people's lives that change human hearts. And that is what you and I are called to do and to be in this world.